Luke chapter 6 is where we are. Now, some of you see this sign, and immediately, where it wasn't in your mind before, you are thinking of all the great reasons there are for picking up goats. Is that right? You were not thinking that before, but now you are. Some of you know people like that, so you are immediately beginning to fear for the goats. Am I right? That's exactly right. Here's the deal. Some of you in this room are rule breakers. You think that rules are alive and ever-changing. Rules to you are mere suggestions for people who don't have the ability to know the right and wrong thing to do at any given moment. People like you. And the vast majority are not people like you, and so you think rules are for uh, those kinds of people. Others of you in this room are rule followers. You believe that rules are to be followed, period. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Here's the danger. The danger is, if you find your life by stepping over the lines, or if you find your life by keeping within those lines, you'll lose your life. Here is a central truth that I don't want you to miss, so it's in your handout this morning. It's this, that life in God is not bound. Life in God is not bound. So indulgence and religion, maybe two extremes, two sides of the coin, are both enslaving taskmasters who kill. So the truth is, you will not only miss out on just the good of life, but on God himself if your gaze is always down at the lines. In a classic case of missing the forest for the trees, what you'll hear today is Jesus' heart for the perfectionist. Where rebels are driven not to conform, perfectionists are driven not to disappoint. They are enslaved to performance, And often find themselves involuntarily holding everyone else and policing everyone else, if not externally, internally in their own mind to their own rules and standards. John Fisher is one of my favorite authors, and he wrote this, that Phariseeism always seems to show up whenever righteousness is pursued in any form at any level. Having been inside of the church for most of my life, and then working full-time as a pastor for my entire adult life, my experience says that this quote is true. So if you think about it, this place has the potential to be a little petri dish of the fungus of Phariseeism, right? It can just be growing right here, right now in our own hearts. As Ben pointed out last week, even as we look at the Pharisees, we can have a Pharisaical attitude in judging them and being so glad that we're not like them. So lest we fall into the same mistake of the very scriptures that we're looking at, I want to call to mind sort of the Pharisaical attitudes that Jesus is lovingly exposing. He's bringing them up. He's stirring them up by his interactions. The young adults made a list uh, as a part of our small group time. Uh, and these are the words that, that we came up with. Comparing. A Pharisee is always comparing. Controlling. Labeling. 
counting. They're compulsive. And the word performance came up as well. Jesus lifts the gaze of those who are fixated on the lines, fixated on the rules. Jesus wants to lift your gaze for those who have ears to hear this morning. Maybe you've heard this, that Christianity is not a religion, but what? A relationship. There's a lot of truth packed in that statement. I think when people say the word religion, what they're thinking about are the negative aspects of religion, the rules aspects of religion. You could almost substitute that word. Christianity is not about rules. It's about a relationship. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Let me tell you how I'm going to do this this morning. Uh, Whenever a sermon turns into a three-hour extravaganza, and I pray and try to cut and pray and try to cut some more, I turn it into a two-part series. So guess what? This is part one. Uh, I want to respect the fact that you may have things to do beyond two o'clock today. And so uh, we're going to land the plane. We're going to pick it back up next week because that's, that's the beauty of meeting every week. We can just chop it in half. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a significant amount of time sort of leading up to this whole notion of Sabbath. In 11 verses, Luke uses the word Sabbath six times. You think Sabbath is kind of important? Yeah. In these 11 verses, six times he draws out and makes a point of saying that it was on the Sabbath. So what I want to do is sort of spend an extended intro time before we even get to the text. And what that's going to do is it's going to set up not only this week, but it's going to set up next week as well. Um, so some of you that, that know me, we, we like to actually open our Bible here at Neighborhood Bible Church. We like to actually read from the Bible. We, we try to learn from the Bible here at Neighborhood Bible Church. But I'm not going to get to the text uh, for, for several minutes here at the beginning. That said, let me, let me bring you up to speed. Um, I, I love this comment from a friend who invited a friend to church, and, and the friend made a comment. She said, you know, um, the, the friend said, what did you think? And she said, you know, uh, it was a little bit like stepping into a movie, uh, mid-movie, mid, mid and not really know what was going on, but I, I liked what was said and, and all of that. And I thought about how the fact that as we meet for church every week, here's who I'm looking at. I am looking at people who could come and teach Luke better than I could right now. I'm looking at people who've never heard of Luke before and everything in between. So as we talk week to week about Luke, I make some assumptions sometimes about where people are at and what's understanding. So I'm going to give a quick little review. So if you're new to the program, you're like, oh, that's what's going on. And if you're old to the program, bear with it and kind of uh, remind yourself. We are going through the gospel of Luke. The main hero in Luke, as in all of the Bible, is Jesus. Uh, he is God in Abad, and he is on a rescue mission to bring health to sick people. Now, there is a huge catch to this. The huge catch is this. The only ones who get well are those who see themselves as sick. If you are not sick and tired of being sick and tired, you want nothing to do with Jesus. And so that's what's happening. That's the story that is beginning to unfold. Who are the villains in the story? Well, truth be told, in essence, everyone, everyone is born a rebel. Here's the deal. People who live in darkness, when the light comes, they recoil from the dark, from, from, from the light. And some even begin to curse the light. But here's what's happening in the Gospel of Luke is that some are starting to see the light. 
Some are having their eyes adjust. Some are starting to run to Jesus and cling to him. And so the, the, the villains of the story, the, the ones who are sort of the anti-hero, are the Pharisees and scribes. Who are they? The Pharisees and scribes were the religious elite of the day. Now, unlike today, if you're the religious elite today, you know what you get? You get confusion, suspicion, and maybe lack of status. If people say, hey, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I'm a pastor. They don't go, oh, wow. Well, here's the red carpet. Come on in. Instead, they go, huh? What is that exactly? <laughs> or, they, or they go, oh. You know, and there's, there's an awkward exchange. In those days, though, the mere title of being a Pharisee or a scribe got you places. It gained you status. It opened doors for you. Um, all right, how about the setting? The setting is... Um, is ancient Israel. And you probably know this from a movie, but tradition, tradition, right? There's no people on the planet who are as good at looking back in the past and understanding the past and thinking about the past than the Jewish people. That's true today as it was then. Now, here's the deal. God prescribed this. God said we should be doing this as, as, a, as, a, as a Jewish nation. And he prescribed feasts and festivals and holidays to be thinking back. Now this produces some really good things when it produces trust and dependence and the energy needed to move forward in life. Here's where always looking back at tradition produces bad things. It produces bad when people grab hold of it and instead of letting it energize them moving forward. It produces self-righteousness, stinginess, and living life to look backwards. If you are driving your car and you are staring at your rearview mirror once in a while glancing out the windshield, that's bad for everyone. That's bad for the person driving the car. It's bad for every passenger in the car. And it's bad for everyone else around you. The way that the Pharisees and scribes were living their life was they were staring in the rearview mirror, once in a while glancing out the windshield. What's going on with the plot of the story? And this is the last one. Well, here's the deal. The plot is thickening. There's sort of growing tension that is happening, and Luke is letting us in on little scenarios that have been going on. It appears to be that it's Jesus versus some religious people. But it's actually bigger than that. It's actually more subtle than that. It's not Jesus versus religious leaders. It's actually Jesus versus the idol of rules. Jesus is setting himself, pitting himself against the idol of rules, either rule keeping or rule following. Luke's been recording some questions that are being asked of Jesus a couple of weeks ago. This question was asked, who can, get, who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus meets this paralyzed guy because he has some over-the-top friends who drop him right in front of Jesus. Why did they do that? Because they were breaking protocol. They weren't following the rules of who gets to, who gets to be in close to the inner circle and hear the teacher or not. They just, they just went around all of that. They said, we have to get this person to Jesus. Jesus meets his deepest need by forgiving him. And then he heals his legs as well, which verifies the unverifiable work of forgiveness. And that's the whole story going on. 
Last week we looked at this. Should we fast and pray or should we eat and drink? The most outcast and the worst screw-ups were the ones who gravitated towards Jesus. You know who he was shunned by? He was shunned by the elite. He was shunned by the comfortable. He was shunned by the wealthy and the self-sufficient. Silicon Valley, hear us in that second description. He's at this party hosted by one such reject where the food and fellowship were more than just a meal. It wasn't just sharing a meal. It was extending fellowship. It was bridging these sort of giant chasms that social protocol would have said, don't soil yourself by being seen with this person, much less being in the person's home and eating. What we're seeing over and over in in Luke so far is this. If you are self-righteous, you hurl insults at Jesus. If you admit your unrighteousness, you run to Jesus. You know what he does? He welcomes you with open arms. Here's the answer to whether we should be uh, eating and feasting or fasting and praying. The answer is this from Jesus. Today we feast. The bridegroom's here. This is a day of feasting. We're not fasting while, while Jesus is on the scene. God is inviting you not just to um, a wedding for a day, but into a family table for a lifetime. That's the invitation Jesus is giving. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the first of these two questions. Should we serve the rules or the ruler? And should we destroy life or save it on the day set apart for God? Now, here's a misrepresentation of Jesus that some people have. How many of you talk to people and they, their, their, their caricature of Jesus is that he's meek and mild and wouldn't hurt a fly and is kind of wimpy? Does that resonate with you? Here's why. They're selectively remembering certain parts of Jesus. What, what you miss out on and what you can tell someone who just simply hasn't read the Gospels is this. These scenes right here, and maybe for some of you growing up in church that had flannel graph Jesus looking prim and proper and he never would be scary to anyone, maybe this is going to break through that this morning. This is why we go through the scriptures. We're going to look at passages that actually shatter that. What starts off as sort of a tense situation, Jesus doesn't sort of deftly step around and not create. He actually steps into it and and, and advances it into a full-blown confrontation. There's tension happening. He doesn't pull away. He steps into it. If there were junior hires in the scene, you can almost hear them going, fight, 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 fight. Like they see it. There's there's something coming going that there's going to be this explosion of things happening. And that's Jesus' doing. He has every ability to step back, and yet he doesn't. Let me talk about Sabbath just for a second. Luke highlights this detail. Now some, when you hear the word Sabbath, you're like, is that a classic rock band? No, that's not what we're talking about. Sabbath is a biblical concept. Uh, it's from a Hebrew word that basically means cease or, de- or, or desist, like just stop, hit pause. Like all of God's commands, the Sabbath was gifted for our good. I happen to have a parent in the room. So she can verify this. But how many of you, by raise of hands, had parents that said, uh, when they were dishing something out, this is for your own good? Raise your hand if you saw that. Okay. Now, leave your hand up if you believed them. I didn't always believe my mom when she said that. Sometimes. Okay, Frank's doing this. There was times we believed. Maybe as we got older, and if you were gifted with parents who reflected the heart of God, Maybe as you got older, your belief in that statement increased. 
Maybe your upbringing story is something totally different. The older you got, the more you believed, no, this is more about you, mom. Dad, this has far more to do with your ease than my good. That's part of what we're all wrestling with and unpacking in our own life history. Here's, here's what goes on with rest. If you don't have a proper understanding of work, then rest, uh, then, then, then rest gets out of skew. Both work and rest are gifts of God. Work came before the fall. So work is not your curse, which means rest is not your heaven. It's not your savior. If you have a proper understanding of work and rest as gifts from God, then you, then, then, then you see that and live joyfully. But the truth is, both work and rest can be used to destroy life instead of give life. Here's the second thing about Sabbath, is that Sabbath is ultimately about worship. Rest one day in seven from everything, so that you can recenter your heart on me, God says. On all that is most important, sort of a re-clarifying of your priorities. And also because you have great need. God gifting the Sabbath to us is a recognition that we're needy people. We are not machines that can just keep going and going and going and going. As some of you in this room can attest because you blew up at one point without rest. It also has its roots in Mosaic law, uh, but also in creation itself. God rested. On the seventh day, right? Was that because he was tired? Say no. No. Yeah, that's not why. God rested as an example to us. He creates and he has a period of rest. Perhaps Jesus goes after the Sabbath because it is so ongoing. This is an idea, this is an understanding that, that will never cease. It just keeps showing up every single week. And so Jesus presses in and does things it seems, specifically on the Sabbath. It's not because he wasn't doing good and teaching and doing other things on different days of the week, but he knew if he just avoided doing those things on the Sabbath, he could avoid confrontation. And instead, he does them every day of the week. Here is the main rub with Sabbath and Jesus. The children of God were enslaved by the taskmasters of Egypt. This was a physical enslavement, meaning that they were a captive people and made to work themselves to the bone and never take a stop or a rest. Their life was sapped of joy by these taskmasters. Remember what God says to the Egyptians is this, let my people go. And it's not just let my people go. It's not just about liberty. It's about the freedom to worship. Let my people go so that they can worship me. So, God frees them from the taskmasters taskmasters of Egypt. Now they are enslaved to law. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the shepherds of the people, the leaders of the people, are the very ones keeping score. And they're not just following the rules, they're adding to the rules, and they're holding everyone else up to the rigorous standards that they think that they are keeping. And Jesus is on the scene To set my people free. To give them freedom and liberty. Here's some observance traditions that that would go on. You couldn't walk too far on the Sabbath or it would be be considered work. You can't drive or operate machines on the Sabbath. No cooking on the Sabbath. No lighting a fire in your house. I read the story this week of someone who uh, was hired as a young boy. He was paid a nickel by his neighbor every single Sabbath to go around and turn on lights for the man. 
And as he grew up, he realized, wow, my own soul was in danger. The guy didn't care that I was breaking Sabbath. He paid me off with a nickel, which was a lot of money to me as a kid. But I went around and made sure he didn't turn on lights and violate the Sabbath law. On and on and on these these traditions would go, such that it became almost impossible to keep the Sabbath. Now, some of you in this room, like my children, think that watching or playing golf is boring. Okay, If you think watching and playing golf is boring, I challenge you someday to read the rules of golf. If you think watching and playing is boring, the rules of golf are, are absolute snooze fest. The Pharisees' big problem is this. They sapped whatever joy there was in life by, by, by following around people playing golf with the rule book open. Nope, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. And what's worse is this, if lightning struck and began to have a tree fall on a person, instead of allowing for common sense, they'd say, don't you dare move. Your your feet have been planted and you're in a stance for a swing, you can't move. And they'd rather have property or person destroyed than break rule 6.11 subpoint A. This is the pharisaical mindset. This is what they were doing. And this is the freedom that God sends his son Jesus in to break the bondage of this kind of living. So into this setting, think about this for a second. Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Think of the lid-lifting, freedom-inducing response that Jesus gives by giving them something so easy to remember and a truth so portable they could take it with them wherever they would go. How many of you know how Jesus answered it? What's the first and greatest command? Say it to me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he gave a twofer, which is? And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. By raising of hands, did anyone on a memory card review their memory verses for this week, this morning, and reread that verse? Has anyone looked at that verse in the last 24 hours? Anyone raise your hands? I'm raising mine because I actually looked at it. Because I put it in print. You know what's powerful? Think about that. Into a world of... I don't understand the rules of golf, and I play all the time, and I'm trying to play fair. Into a world of that, Jesus hands them this portable truth that just says, go and do these two things, go and live this way, you'll be good. I mean, it's freedom, people. And and what we're going to see today, the the text that we're going to see today, is you're going to see the sort of clause of bondage and how easy it is to fall into that, how safe it feels to fall into that, and Jesus blowing the whole thing apart. All right, question number one. Should we serve the rules or the ruler? Luke 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man, that's a favorite reference of Jesus for himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm not really going to write this book, but it would be a fun book to write. You may be a Pharisee if... You may be a Pharisee if you are spying on a group of people out on a hike to see what kind of trail mix they are eating. 
Think about this. They have to be out in some sort of rural place, right? So I don't know if they have early binoculars, a telescope, if they're sneaking around in the trees around them. But they're seeing them. They're watching them. They're, they're hounding them. They're obsessing over their behavior. The religious gotcha squad throws a flag. Here's the four-part foul. You ready? Maybe for walking too far on the Sabbath. They're walking far enough to need a little snack. Maybe it's for harvesting food. Maybe it's for winnowing the grain. Maybe it's for preparing a meal. If you imagine what it would be like to be out on a hike and to take some peanuts that are in the shell to deshell them and eat them, that's roughly the amount of work that was going on for this snack. That's roughly the amount of preparation happening for this meal. Pharisees then and now make rules more important than Jesus. Pharisees then and today make the rules more important than Jesus. They do something that I would regularly prescribe, but they do it in the wrong way, and that is this. They appeal to the authority of Scripture. They've already appealed just to their own title with Jesus in the past. Now they're going to Scripture. And Jesus answers the charge in verses 3 to 5. And here's his simple answer. I've not broken any law. He too appeals to Scripture. And he highlights the history of Israel's most celebrated king, King David. And he tells a story of how they ate bread. And the only safe place they could go while they were being chased. He wasn't king yet, by the way. The only safe place to go was the temple. And the only food to eat was this food, the the, the bread of the presence. Matthew and Luke both record this as well. And in Matthew 12, 5 to 7, we see the same scenario. And and Matthew adds a little bit of an interesting uh, component to this. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, listen carefully. But he's pointing out this, that priests work every Sabbath. If you go read the Old Testament, the Sabbath day is loads of work for the priest. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, 7 is that not only is he working, but he's working in the temple, this priest, and he's found guiltless. Here's how it reads. Listen carefully. Or have you not read the law? Jesus talking, same scenario. Matthew records it. Luke doesn't add this part. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, if they're held by your rules, they'd be breaking rules left and right. And he says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, and then he quotes another Old Testament passage, I, God, desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is unequivocally saying, I have broken no laws, And he says these two things. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is our temple, right? We no longer go to a place of worship in some place far away that we have to make a journey to. The worship temple comes to us. Jesus dwells in us. Something far greater than the temple. The temple was a sign pointing to something greater coming. And so then Matthew adds what what Luke adds, which is that he's Lord of the Sabbath. So greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath day, is me. And you're missing it. Why? Because your eyes are fixed on the lines. And here's the problem. You're not even reading the lines correctly. You're not even getting it right. Right? 
Jesus is lifting their gaze, trying to. He's saying to trust me instead of always trying to trap me. Here's what hard hearts do, and here's what law living does. Law living leaves you hard-hearted. And those who are hard-hearted desire opposite of what God wants. Instead of mercy, they desire sacrifice. So if you're hard-hearted, you end up wanting to perform. You end up wanting to do the ritual. You end up wanting to come and look good and do the, 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 the thing that makes it look like it's all good. It's the outside of the cup type living, right? And what gets sacrificed in the process is the very thing that's priority to God, which is mercy. Many years ago, we had a very nice lady come to our door, and we opened it, I think, on a Saturday morning. And anytime you open the door in our house, we have a giant lab who's very untrained because he's the last one to get trained in our house because we have a lot of other people to train. So he's jumping all over this person. We always have kids peeking around the corner in various modes of being dressed and messiness and all that fun stuff. So we open the door. Nice lady's there. She's selling candy bars um, for, I think, a, a, a women's... Um, a women's shelter kind of a deal. So I let her know right away. I said, you know what? Um, thank you for the offer. I said, we're, we're not going to buy any candy today. <laughs> um, and what, what proceeded to happen is just a really pleasant conversation. She was a little bit curious about our family. We began to talk to her and just had a really nice exchange. This was right when Eli and Kaya were, were first home. So they're now eight years old. So that was years ago. Well, she has proceeded to come back um, every single year, and every year she knocks on our door, and about two or three years in, after saying, hey, how's it going? We're not buying any candy. How are you? Like, I would just let it know right up front, like, like let's not have an exchange if you think it's going to land me buying some of your candy, because that's not, like, I don't have time for that. And we would just have this really great little friendship that, that, that grew in, you know, about three to five minute increments once a year. Um, and, and, and she kept knocking, and she would come and knock on our door, and eventually it wasn't about selling candy anymore. She would come and say, hey, how are you guys doing? And we would ask how she was doing and this and that. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we get a knock on the door on a Saturday morning, and you know, usually there's someone there trying to open the door, and we're like, hang on, let's wait for an adult, let's figure out what's happening. You know, we, we have the door open, and there's a stranger's voice. I'm still walking around the corner, there's a stranger's voice, um, and it's, it's our friend training a new person. So we have a new person at the door, and, and she had her little thing showing who she was and this and that, and I open the door, and I see our friend at the sidewalk, sort of down our walk, and I say, hey, how's it going? And she goes, hi. And then the woman uh, who's starting into her little spiel, uh, she, she starts talking, and, and the woman, our, our friend, sort of interrupts, and she says, give them all candy. She goes, give them all candy. Don't try to sell them any to her. Just give them candy. Now, the, the whole deal is, I think it's like $15 for like a king-size Snickers. I've never really asked. I don't even know the price, but they've got to make their money. That's the whole point of them doing this on a Saturday morning. So she's, I said, no, 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 no. We don't need candy. A few things are rolling through my brain. We have high dental bills. I pay them. I don't want more dental bills. We have lots of sugar. We don't, we haven't eliminated sugar yet. We don't, we're not hungry for that. Um, but the rest of my Saturday will be kids even more bouncing off the walls once we get sugar. There's all kinds of reasons I don't want this to happen. She is insisting, give them each. She comes up to the door. She goes, give them each candy. She goes, how many are there? And there's all these little faces. I mean, 
I mean, the second I said candy, I can guarantee you the, the kid in all of us is like, wait, what? Is there candy? Like, what's happening? So they're all here, and then she makes this comment. She goes, where's the rest? She knew our family. I said, well, the, the three oldest are off at work. So she's counting. She goes, okay, that's nine. She goes, she goes here, give them, give them all the, give them nine full-size candy bars. And I'm, I'm going, this is insane. Like, this sets you back months. I don't, who buys this stuff? Like, we can't take all your profit, and I'm not paying for it. But at some point in the insistence process, it dawned on me it would be a gracious favor to her if we received the candy. I didn't want the candy. I had some good reasons why not to take the candy. The door is closed, and my sweet daughter Tegan, freshman, comes up with this brilliant comment. She says, wait a minute. I thought we weren't supposed to take candy from strangers. (laughs) I busted up laughing. Because it wasn't even our friend offering. It was a stranger. I'd never seen this person in my entire life. Here's the key. If it is serving another person in love, and if someone greater than the rule is present, then keep your eyes fixed on dad, hear what he says to do, and take the candy. That's what was going on in that situation. There was, there was a, there was a rule breaking moment. The central truth, God's, uh, life in God is not bound. Had we all been fixed on that, I said, I did say that. I did say that rule. Sorry, I think we would have missed an opportunity to just be merciful to this dear friend. I love that she keeps coming to our house knowing that we're nothing but a time waster for her in terms of her profit and sales. Let me give you a scriptural picture of this as we wrap up. Turn over to the book of Titus. In the book of Titus chapter 3, Ben and I happen to be reading the same Bible plan right now. And so um, he'll know that as I'm reading separate from this, I come across some verses, I thought, wow, there's a snapshot of it. There's a snapshot picture of what the the heart of this is for. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Listen to how serious law living is addressed in this passage, okay? But avoid foolish controversies. Still under the avoid banner, avoid genealogies. Avoid dissensions and avoid quarrels about the law. These are the things Paul is saying to Timothy, stay far away from all of this. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. Now listen to how serious this gets. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Do we feel the gravity of this? This is not giving someone a pass because they like to argue. This is not giving a pass because, well, they love to study those Bible charts and those genealogies and they just kind of constantly bring that up. You know, there are people in every single church on any given day who are sitting 
in buildings like this, who listen online, who scour the websites of churches, who troll message boards with the sole purpose of catching an error, of finding the mistake, of sort of zooming in and saying, oop, that's not right. And their sole glory in life is to expose it and then confront the offender. You guys have seen pit bulls in action. These are like pulpit pit bulls. They grab onto something and they won't let go until they die. That's just who they are. I used to defend myself when I would get these. Inevitably, you get comments like these. And I would, I would back up with scripture and I would, I would express what I was trying to say and all kinds of things. And I've learned something over time. I've learned this great phrase. You ready for it? This is a great way. Doesn't it take two to keep an argument going? Here's a great phrase. You ready for it? You may be right. You may be right. Isn't that a great phrase? That sets down your whole pile of firewood to keep that argument burning. What I found over time was this. Much of the time in the high 90 percentile, in my very unscientific estimation. This person wanted to quarrel about genealogies, argue about the law, find out where I misspoke. They had no intention of growing. They had no intention of, of much of, of anything else. What I realized was this. I'm instructed as a pastor biblically that I am supposed to instruct with all patience. So when I get an email like that, if you come up and approach me, I'm supposed to instruct with all patience. I leaned really heavy on that side for a long time. I also realized this. You can spit into the wind. What happens when you spit into the wind? Bad things. It's pointless. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. So God gave me this sort of freedom to say, instruct with all patience, but there's a time to not throw your pearls before swine, lest they turn and attack you and devour you some more. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Anyone who speaks publicly in a Bible study, one-on-one in a setting like this, is not above critique, correction, insight, or follow-up questions. Can you hear me really clearly for a second? I welcome that. You know what I know? Proverbs says this, where there's many words, there's many sins. Sin is just error. It's missing it. I make many mistakes because I speak for a living. I have welcomed and grown so much by the gracious and sometimes not so gracious spirit of people in this church saying, I don't think that's really what it says. I think you have this off. I think you have that off. Let me prep you, though, with something. If you come up to me and ask me that or point something out or, or want to, to discuss something that was said, I may ask this. I'm glad that you are harping on this thing and I, 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 can try, I think I'm seeing your, your picture of how the Greek might say that and not this and, and I've done some of that study. But here's, here's what I may ask you. What else did you get out of the sermon? Maybe not just the sermon. What else did God say to you this morning? Because here's what's interesting. Uh, sometimes I might be uh, ending the ser- service by calling our congregation and myself to renounce selfish gain. 
Or it may be to sacrificially love my neighbor. Or it may be to go with less so that others can simply survive. Or it may be that I'm supposed to be truthful even to my own hurt. And what I may ask you is this. I'm glad we're discussing the finer points of this one word. But did any of that other stuff land on you at all? Did any of that get through? My heart for all of us would be that we would be humble and submissive and meek to the word of God. And so let me thank you and let me invite you to say, man, if you want to discuss more, I am wide open to that. And I hope that my follow-up would be gracious. I hope that I would be instructive. I hope that I'd be humble enough to be corrected. Some of you have corrected me in first service and I've made the change since second service. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. But the motive matters. I was talking to my friend Tim Riley. Many of you know Tim. He taught compelled years and years ago. He pastors a church now off in Santa Clara. He's the guy that told me one day, Dave, I'll never be a pastor. I just laughed. I said, wow, can't wait to see where you're going to end up. He ends up pastoring a church, right? So he pastors a church in Santa Clara. I'm calling about something totally different uh, this week. We're talking and he said something. I said, wait, say that again. What did you just say? And what he said stirred up this passage to me. He said, you know, Dave, here's something we preach at our church. We believe we grow to look more like Jesus by doing what he says in his word for the right reasons. And for the right reasons, like shot out of his mouth through my cell phone, I just went, that's, that's it. I said, Tim, text me that. Text me that verbatim because that's exactly the heart of what we're talking about on Sunday. It's not a disregard for the word of God. Did the Pharisees and scribes do the right thing by appealing to scripture? Yes! They're there for that purpose. But their motive was all wrong. So you can do the right things in the wrong way and with the wrong motive and it ends up being sinful and wicked such that Paul would write to young Timothy, have nothing to do with people like that. All it does is cause division in the church. I hope you're still in Titus because what I want to show you is this. After talking about those components, here is an example of missing out on the good if you do that. What are good works? Do you know that good works are just things that need to get done? If you're a mom, good works are stuff moms do. If you work at a computer company, good works are showing up for work every day. And honoring what you're supposed to be doing at work. If you're a student, the good work is to show up and, and do the schoolwork and, and do your best. If you're an athlete, the same. So good works are just the normal stuff of life and good works also encompass something else. It's those things that might be. It's dreaming a little bit and saying, oh, I keep seeing this one person. It seems like it'd be great to bless them in some way. How can I bless them? It's not stuff you have to do. No one's, no one's specifically laid out a job description, but you're like, this would really bless them. I can't figure out what it is yet, but let me figure out how to bless them. Our sweet little Eli came up with this. We had a neighbor two doors down pass away unexpectedly. And the wife is, is still alive. The husband, very sweet man. Uh, passed away. They're Christians. He's with Jesus. He's having a great day. The family, not so much. And you know what sweet little Eli came up with was, you know what? We need to start taking her trash can out on trash night and bring it back in. Isn't that sweet? That's it. 
So good works are, Eli, do your chores, empty the dishwasher. Okay, and he's dreaming about what could be. So let's strip away good works as like, I think I'm supposed to start an orphanage in Kenya. Have you ever met anyone from Kenya? No. Do you know where it is? Not really. Well, maybe that's not really the step right now. Why don't you get your chores done and why don't you dream of how to bless someone two doors away that's going through some trauma? So watch this. Look at verse 12, Titus 3. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Do your best. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. These are the good works that are right in front of you. Just some basic chores that will kind of keep the mission moving forward. Do you see like not demanding perfection, but saying, do your best. I trust you. I know your motive is right. Do your best to, 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 to do well by these guys. See that they lack nothing. And then look at verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so that they can help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The Pharisees had their head in the rule book and the rules never translated to actually playing golf. It never translated to actually living. There are people who do the same thing uh, today. And they don't learn to devote themselves to the good works. Do you know what drives me to Scripture more often than not? It's me trying to pursue what, what God is putting on my heart to do. And then I go, I'm, I'm way out here. I don't know how to do this. I'm driven to look to the Scriptures. I get out in a situation. I go, this feels really messy. I'm not even sure this is allowed. And I'm driven to look in the Scriptures. And my gaze keeps coming back to Dad and saying, God, is this from you or is this not? Would you stop me if I'm not supposed to be... Am I supposed to take candy? I'm not even paying for it. This feels weird. Take the candy. Today you are being gifted the Lord's Day and you are investing it by being with God's people in worship. I celebrate that because it'd be really lonely being here by myself. It's good to be together with God's people on Sunday morning. Here's part of the invitation. The invitation is to step off the treadmill. Instead of continuing the rat race and just funneling all your time and energy to more driven performance, this is a day to step off. And again, I say this regularly, but we have people regularly in this room who are the boss at their company and a brand new employee at their company. And this setting reminds them, you know what? We're all brothers and sisters. We're all beggars at the foot of the cross and Jesus generously gives to us and we receive. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to have the band play a little bit of music behind and then they'll lead us into a song at some point. But I want you to just take a couple of moments and take this gifted moment of rest and think about Sabbath. Where the Sabbath is not gifted because the work is done. Hear me, the work is never done. It's not even gifted to you because it's done well. As if this is more performance. Here you get a gold star. It's gifted across the board. Not because it's done. Not because it's done well. But simply because God is good and generous. Amen? It's gifted to you, hear me, because you need it. Take these next few moments and just let out a deep breath. 
You don't need to learn a new song in these next few moments. You don't need to answer some questions that will be on a screen in the next few moments. Just be. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to give you a few moments of rest. Take the scripture that began the conversation and start there in your mind with what God may want to say to you in these few moments we have together.